This is Minister in the Making, episode number 26. I'm B.T. Irwin. This is a podcast for church people, from the ones who stand in the pulpit every Sunday to the ones who sneak onto the back row once in a while. The mission of this podcast is to give church people a behind-the-scenes, inside look at life in Christian ministry. Your guide is my dad, Travis Irwin, who shares the stories and wisdom he collected from almost 50 years in full-time church work. When Dad arrived in Ashland, Ohio in August 1981, the Church of Christ that met at 323 Steele Avenue comprised about 150 members. But by the mid-1990s, the congregation's membership swelled to almost 350 people. The building was bursting at the seams. People couldn't find a place to park on Sunday mornings. There was not one more inch of space left in which to grow. So the elders of the church began a long campaign to raise funds, purchase property, and build a new campus on West Main Street. The congregation was enthusiastic in its support for this goal. But as hard work and hope pointed to a brighter future than anyone once imagined, Dad's world was growing darker with each passing year. As the congregation gave more money and plans moved closer to putting shovels in the ground, Dad was putting himself under greater and greater pressure to meet impossibly high expectations. The church was getting ready to build, but Dad was tearing himself down. What was happening and why? Let's listen to Dad share his side of the story. Okay, Dad, so uh, real quick here before we get into our conversational topic this time. Um, how you feeling? How's your health? What's new with you? Uh, what's happened in your life? You've got well, some big just, news. We just had great, great vacation. Times. We just had a great Thanksgiving. Right. Of course, you and your family were here and the girls were over in Nashville. We had a great time visiting everybody and eating and just hanging out together. And so that it's been a great, great uh, past week. I haven't had chemotherapy for three weeks because I was hospitalized uh, earlier, about two weeks ago on the 14th. And so uh, I didn't get chemo then. Didn't I, get, I don't think I got chemo the week before. Didn't I get chemo last week? So I'm 21 days out from having any chemo. And as a result, I feel really good. I feel normal. Yeah. Uh, but that will change tomorrow. I get back on chemo tomorrow morning at about eight or nine o'clock. But I was doing good right now. I appreciate you asking. Well, don't. Uh... You know, you were in the hospital. That's big news. You've been three weeks without chemo. That's big news. Uh, but I think you're leaving out the biggest news of all, aren't you? Well, we had a granddaughter born to us during all there that time. That she was born uh, Monday, uh, the Monday I was in the hospital, the 15th. And so Emmy uh, Ruth came along, came a little bit early, but she's full, fully, uh, uh, she's fully there. Nothing wrong with her. Uh, she's a preemie by definition but she's eight pounds mm-hmm. was born eight pounds 18 and a half inches long and she's a doll she is a doll and uh keeps her mom and dad very busy yeah we got to I mean, feed her and hold her and that was just fantastic i didn't have a chance Pardon? i didn't ask you about this while we were down there but i mean what does it mean to you for uh for bethy to have have this this granddaughter for you well, when Bethy was younger, Bethy was a teenager, the doctors told her that she would never have children, ever, ever mm-hmm. have children. 
and never ever try to have children. It would probably kill her. Well, since that time, another 20 something years later, um, there's been such advancements in her medical care, but also in medicines that she is able to have children. And uh, other CF patients have had children. Uh, CF females have had children, some two, some three. This is Beth's first, this may be the only one. So, I mean, you know, the baby, the baby itself herself is a miracle in a way. Yeah. We thought, we thought Beth would never be able to have a child or bear a child, yeah. but she has, and she did well. She's having some adjustment uh, to the C-section. She's getting better. It's going on two weeks. So she's getting better and the baby is healthy and uh, everything's really good. It's just amazing. We feel we feel very blessed. We feel God's answered a lot of prayers, yeah. prayers that we've been praying for the past uh, 38 years. Yeah. The miracles keep on coming. They do. Um, I mean, we never expected Bethy to, to, to have a child and, or to, um, or to live. She, uh, yeah. uh, when Beth was born, uh, her mortality rate was about, I think 18 years. Right. And now she's 38 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So if anybody listening uh, ever has any doubts about what's possible, um, let that little story encourage you. Um, changing gears a little bit, Dad, to things that are possible and amazing and remarkable and worthy of thanks. Um, we're going to go back in time to Ashland, Ohio again, as we've been talking about your years in Ashland. The last few episodes. And um, as long as you were the minister to the Steel Avenue Church of Christ from August 1981 until January 2003, uh, the congregation always met at 323 Steel Avenue in Ashland, Ohio. But um, not long after you left, the congregation moved to a new campus that it built from the ground up over on West Main Street in Ashland. Um, I couldn't remember what year the, the congregation moved. Do you remember what year they moved to the new building? I'm thinking 2005. That's what I'm thinking. Five. Okay. Yeah. Somewhere in four, it's 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. So you were, uh, you were gone by then. Right. But even though the congregation finished building its new campus, uh, two years after you left, you were deeply involved in all of the work that took place to get ready to actually build that new facility from start to finish. Um, and I was a front row witness to a lot of the work that you did uh, to, uh, to get that building campaign off the ground. So uh, first of all, going all the way back to August, 1981, when you first arrived at the Steel Avenue Church of Christ, uh, did you arrive in Ashland with dreams of helping the congregation outgrow its building? Not necessarily, no. That was not my intent. Ne never even thought of it. So then never when is the first, it. yeah, when is the first time then that you remember having a thought uh, or hearing someone say that, you know, maybe we should plan to build a new facility for this congregation? It wasn't for many years after that. It was, it was probably wasn't 18 or 19 years maybe 17, but okay. we, we went to two services on Sunday morning 
and uh, a lot of people did not like the two services um, because they didn't didn't get to see their friends like they used to when they attended one service. And you know, we told them, you know, hey, you can you can always come to another service or see them during the week, but that didn't seem to satisfy them. But they they saw a need to they, they wanted to all meet together at the same time in the same place. And so that was the impest the impestus or the, mm -hmm. uh, the the driving rod. Yeah. Yeah, that word, yeah. The uh, the driving force behind the idea of, of going to a, a building campaign. And so, mm -hmm. you know, and we, our classrooms were uh, full. Our parking lot was full. We were parking cars in the grass. We were parking cars on the street. And it just, everybody says, it'd probably just be better if we just went ahead and built something. Yeah. So that's Do you do you remember was it a thought that you had in your head or do you remember the first person who mentioned the idea to you i don't write i really don't remember yeah and ray breinberger was the kind of person that kind of thought outside the box on things like that it may have been ray yeah. ray was ray was a very discerning person mm -hmm. and he may have been thinking what would happen if we didn't get a building or didn't build mm -hmm. And because if, if you don't build, sometimes that'll slow your growth down to zero. Yeah. There's a no saying that once you get to 80% of your, I think it's 80% of your capacity, you stop growing. Because people like like parking, like I said a few mm -hmm. weeks ago, like they like good parking, they like clean restrooms, they like they like like to have sometimes some people like to have their own pew. They don't like to be crowded. <laughs> and so, you know, you know, it might have been Ray. Um uh, my, you know, I, I don't remember, but I, I, I say Ray would be the most likely candidate to say, hey, he may have brought it up in an elders meeting and they started mm -hmm. talking about it. I don't remember all those details right now. That's what I would say. Yeah, the, the building was, uh, I remember the two services, the parking lot, people had to park on the street. Yeah. Uh, and in the grass, the you just brought up the restrooms. The restrooms were small. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I... I imagine that they wouldn't let you build a building now with uh, with those restrooms because no. they wouldn't even be up to code. Right. Um, the classrooms were small. So yeah, by the 90s, and and if anybody hasn't listened to a prior episode of this, when, um, when we arrived in Ashland in 81, the congregation had about 150 members. But by the mid to late 90s, uh, attendance on Sunday mornings was... Uh, pushing 300 to 350. So there was quite a lot of growth there. How did the, um, how did this grow from being an idea that maybe, you know, you speculated that maybe Ray Breitenbooker was the first person to bring it up. Ray was an elder. Uh, so he was one of the leaders of the church. How, do you remember how this grew from an idea among a few people, you know, informal conversations uh, into a goal? for the entire congregation it just it just evolved where people stopped stopped talking and the leadership said let's let's stop talking and let's call someone in to give us some advice on this get their opinion mm -hmm. uh, maybe do a, do some preliminary drawings uh to give us an idea uh of what this would cost in the way of money and time and energy and uh that's kind of the way it's always done everywhere. A lot of people want to know what it's going to cost in dollars and cents. And 
that way they know whether they can afford it or not. If, mm-hmm. if you can't afford it, you can't build it. And yes. of course, where we were on Still Avenue was landlocked. Yes. We talked about going out back. Well, you can't go out back. There's nothing. Well, there's a little bit of grass there. There's yeah. a little bit of grass out front, but there's nothing, no place to go. And, and, and the city would not let you build unless you had the parking, adequate parking. Mm-hmm. So they're all kind of different codes they had to deal with. They pretty much had just scratched the idea of doing anything else there on steel and putting any more money into that building. Mm-hmm. So they thought, well, the only thing we have left is to go to uh, call someone who's a professional builder, contractor, architect. Let's see what this is going to cost. Let's see if this is doable. Of course, you got to talk to the banks and see what they're going to uh, loan you. So they they started, you know, talking to different people, making phone mm-hmm. calls, asking people to come by and visit on a Monday night, like an architect, and walk around the building and talk and say, here's what here's what we think we need. And uh, then we started getting drawings and it kind of went from there. Was there ever any conversation about how much the congregation could grow in a new facility? And people, I assume that a lot of people who listen to this won't be familiar with the church building um, at the time. It was in the middle of a residential neighborhood. Right. Yeah. So it was surrounded on all sides by uh, private homes. And right. there was no land that the uh, congregation could acquire. And there was, you know, even if the building, if, if there could be an addition to the building, there was nowhere to put additional parking. No. So um, it makes a lot of sense that the leaders of the congregation brought in uh, architects uh, to talk about um, facility needs. But was there any conversation at, at that time about, well, how much more do we think this congregation can grow in terms of the of membership and you know what kind of facility do we need for that kind of growth do you do you recall that conversation um what we had what we had thought about doing is building a three-pronged building one with an education wing one with a multi-purpose building and one with an auditorium and what we decided to do was to not put, not put, not use pews, not use church pews, but use chairs. Mm-hmm. And so, with chairs, mm-hmm. you can have forty people, uh, or you can have four hundred people, or five hundred people, six hundred people. The the building they're using now uh, could be used for multi-purpose, but it's basically used for worship and for fellowship. And you could, uh, this thing is so huge, you could probably put. 600 chairs in it easily. Mm-hmm. So they built big enough and economically enough and did not plan to use pews that they could, they could, they could, they could almost double. Mm-hmm. You uh, said to me a long time ago in one of the early episodes about your time in Ashland, and you didn't say this uh, on the air. This was in a conversation that we had as yeah. we were getting ready to start the the interview okay you said that there there was a person uh maybe a, a pastor at another church there in ashland uh or an expert i don't remember who once told you that that congregation that church of christ congregation in ashland ohio uh could have grown to a thousand members or more 
this this person told you just looking at the town looking at your your congregation you know travis that congregation can 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 hit a thousand members or more um so what i'm asking is when you actually started talking about building did the leadership of the congregation ever talk about well what kind what do we want the growth of the congregation itself to look like how many members do we think we could have um in this congregation if it continues to grow and you see what I'm saying? So rather than talking about the building, what kind of building do we want? Right. How much did the leaders of the congregation talk about the growth that they expected and the growth that they wanted? Just to be honest about it, I don't remember anything at all said about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the person who said that about the church was Rule Lemons, who's now deceased. And he came to hold a, a meeting for the church there. And I got to spend quite a bit of time with him. And, and he said, he said, there's no reason why this church should not grow. He said it should. And I think he's the one that said it could be, you know, 600, 800, 1,000 members. But there's certain things you've got to do. And, and he didn't mention a building, but that, of course, is always in the cards. But uh, he was the fellow who said that. And uh, there never was a number, a specific number suggested or given as to be a starting place to where we need to build build for 600 a build for 800 a build for a thousand or build for 400 there, no one ever mentioned any numbers i never mentioned any numbers mm-hmm. all i knew at the time was we just couldn't grow anymore where we were and we needed we needed more we needed more education space we needed more uh fellowship space we needed new more parking space we needed more seating for worship and assemblies and we never we never talked about numbers but once again and to their credit and to their 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 wisdom was build it a certain size and they did and this 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 place is humongous it is huge and when you you put 200 chairs in there there's a lot of space left over i mean a lot of space yeah yeah so I think I think they decided, you know, let's, let's build a size that will accommodate a lot of folks. And they only built one one of the three prongs mm-hmm. or tips of the star. Uh, and they could be there a long time and grow into that before they have to build another one. And then that then if they built another one, they could build a bigger one if they had to. Mm-hmm. So, just you know, uh, they didn't talk about numbers, but they wanted to make sure these these uh, edifices were big enough for expansion and growth was that was that um you know architects always say form follows function and a lot of what you've talked about just now is is form so i've been in the ashland church of christ building which is the facility that the congregation eventually built and it is uh the meeting space is much much larger than the old meeting space over at uh on steel avenue um so uh so they designed the form uh the facility itself with 600 people in mind let's say um was 
the form of the facility, what, let me, let me back up. At what point in the decision to start a building campaign was the form the building would take first brought up? In other words, early on in those elders meetings, did they say, this is the kind of building we need. Let's go figure out how to do it. Yeah. Or was it, we discerned that we're going to need a new facility. Let's go find out what kind of facility we need and how to do it. You understand the difference between those two? One, you're, you've already made up your mind what you need. And now you're going to go get the means to acquire yeah. it. The other is we're going to, we're, we don't know what we need. Yeah. We don't know how we're going to grow. Let's yeah. go discern what we should do next. It was, it was, um, you know, everybody was given an opportunity to come back with some ideas after a meeting mm -hmm. and the, the pot, the most popular form was the three prong building. Mm -hmm. Multi-purpose education, worship yeah. facility. And How early in the process, though? So early. At the very okay, beginning. early. Yes. Before it was announced to the congregation. Uh, early. You know, the, the congregation knew the leadership was looking into a new mm -hmm. facility. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, after some discussion, you know, you, you never want to go before the brethren when you're not prepared. So after some discussion and prayer, in fact, I think even before an architect was contacting, they may have done this, but I, they may have contacted an architect too. They, I think the elders went to the church and said, we need to, we need to expand for these reasons, one, two, three. And here's kind of the idea we've got in mind, but we're interested in what you have to say about it as well. They wanted a, they wanted a central meeting place. Uh, the vestibule and the Still Avenue Church building was very small. People could not stay in there and visit. It got too crowded. Right. Yeah. So they they wanted a central loc a central location. I don't know what you'd call that, but that's what it has today. Even though there aren't two more star points off of that, and so they wanted that. And they got that. Plus they have one one uh, one of the, one of the three buildings built there today, and it's mm -hmm. all worked out really well. But they I mean they had a we had a model of this and everything. Uh, we had a model, and and of course an architect gave the plans. I don't know if we posted. Uh, the elevation of the building or uh, uh, an aerial view of the proposed building or the or an aerial view of the plans. I don't, I don't remember that part, but we did have a model and we wanted yep. people to look at it. Every, everybody got on board. It was, it was amazing. I don't, I, there might've been some descending uh, voices. There's always descending voices when you're getting ready to spend a million dollars. Yeah. Build yeah. something new. I don't remember a lot of that. Everybody was tired of being crowded, having to park out in the street and so forth. So everybody was pretty much on board pretty quickly. Do you remember if the decision to go forward with this was made in an elders meeting or was it made in a congregational meeting? That's a great question. Uh, it was not necessarily made in a congregational meeting because it wasn't necessary to have a congregational meeting. Mm -hmm. The people the people were communicating constantly. Mm. They weren't complaining. They were just communicating. There's a need to, for a change. And I think the decision was finally made by the elders to move forward. What year they was that? It. What year was that? Yeah. Um, I left in 2004. I'd say 
right at the turn of the century. I'd say 98, 99, 2000, 2001, somewhere, somewhere in there. And uh, they started the process of getting an architect in there. They worked with one particular architect for two years. There was uh, there were two phases to this. The first okay. phase was to raise money to acquire the land. So yeah. that was phase one. Yeah, that's correct. Once, once the congregation acquired the land, uh-huh. uh, the second phase was to uh, raise funds to build the building on the land. Start so I remember I remember this campaign rolling out that way. Um, and I'd say you said late, you know, maybe 98, 99. Uh I feel like the congregation was already working on purchasing property. Okay. Well before that. Okay. Um, so, um, I don't know. That's my memory. You might, you were in the meeting, so you may remember it different, but I seem to remember it being a two-part campaign. Okay. That's, you are correct on that. We bought the. We look, went looking for land. Right. We found land. We put a uh, a bid on the land, and we got we got the land. Yeah. And here, here and, and then, uh, it, but it was a while before they built the building, though. Right. Now the land, the congregation purchased the land with cash, is what I'm assuming, because we did a lot of fundraising. Yeah. Uh, for several years, and um, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But we did a lot of fundraising fundraising before we purchased the property and so my assumption is that when we bought the land we bought it outright without having to take out a loan to get it is that accurate that sounds sounds correct yeah and what you said about the congregation being behind this uh what i was going to say is i remember a um i think it was the first sunday that we did a special offering uh you know, we were in, and we set a really high goal for that yeah. special offering. Yeah. And I think it was $50,000 or yeah, something every, like that. Every bit of that. Yes. And, uh, we had never done anything like that before. No. I think that, I think what landed in the plate every Sunday, if my memory serves me was about 1500 bucks. I mean, yeah. I think that's what, what landed in the plate every Sunday. And so uh, we went, mom was working really hard on this and we campaigned for months for this special collection that was going to take place on this particular Sunday to raise $50,000. Yeah. And um, there were people who told mom, this is what mom told me at the time. There were people that were telling her we were never going to get that. It was not, it was not going to happen. And, um, and then I remember that Sunday, uh, we took the regular offering yeah. and then we did the special offering Yeah, and they counted it up before yeah. we left that day. They wanted oh. to announce what we got. Right. And, um, we beat that number. I think yeah. we, I think we came up with $55,000, that special offering. I remember I looked over at mom and she, she burst into tears. She just, right? she just started crying. We um, people. So it was a, um, you know, it, it, it's clear. And that wasn't the only special offering we did. You may remember, I think we did a special offering like every six months or, or every year. 
for a long time. And it, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe how many special offerings we were doing and how every time we did one, people came through. Um, so it's obvious that the, the congregation was behind it. Who was running this campaign, Dad? I mean, can you remember how, how this campaign to raise funds got organized you know like who made the plan who was working the plan who kept this thing going you're talking about uh, almost 20 years ago i don't i don't remember i do i do remember the the figures you're using and i remember the campaign and i remember going over the campaign i just don't remember who who was uh, in charge of it um i'm sure the elders promoted it from the pulpit I'm sure I promoted it from the pulpit. There were constant reminders. I don't know if we sent out letters. I don't know if we called everybody. I'm not sure how we did it all, but uh, the, the brethren were well informed and well reminded uh, that something was coming on a certain date. And this is the day we're gonna do this with, for God, with God's help and with, for God's glory. And we did it it was a very, it's a very, uh, it was a very moving thing. It was a moving thing for your mom. I just made me, made me feel so very proud of the faith the brethren had to give that kind of money. And yeah. uh, there's, there's a lot of sacrifice involved in that, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, what was your role in the campaign? So you may not remember. I, I think there was a committee, Dad, and I'm pretty uh -huh. sure Mom was on the committee. Uh -huh. But uh, let's talk about you and your role. What was your role in all of this? I'm sure, I'm sure I preached on it. Um, I can't tell you what I preached on it. That's too long ago. I'm sure I preached on it several times. I'm sure I uh, mentioned it in the, in my announcements at the end of every service and sometimes at the beginning, you know, like for example, next Sunday is the big contribution. Don't forget and blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm sure we prayed about it. Uh, it was in our, just about every prayer that, the men led in services in the worship services. There's, I heard it prayed in classes. Um, I'm not sure we talked about it in class, but we may have, and a lot of teachers may have talked about it to their children and to the teens and to our adults. I don't remember that specifically, but I mean, everybody knew. Everybody knew this was coming down the pike. Mm -hmm. And just to be honest with you, I had I had my own personal doubts about it because our congregation was made up of a hundred retired people. Hmm. And then hmm. we probably had that many uh, young couples and I'm not complaining about either, either of those groups, but you know, older people are on fixed incomes and younger people uh, have all the expenses of raising children. And then there's the rest in the middle there who have empty nest and maybe they have a few extra dollars because the kids are gone. But I just try to figure this thing about my, in my head and it doesn't make sense. When you walk by faith, it doesn't make sense. When you trust God to give the increase, you give you trust God to supply your needs. Common sense goes out the at the at the at the at the door out the window, and so that's what happened. And people put their faith in the Lord, and they sacrificed, and they I don't know how they came up with it, but they came up with it. You're talking about if you if you had 150 families and they gave fifty thousand dollars. Um, and that you talk how much is that $300 a pop or is that 200 no almost $330 a piece or mm -hmm. more than you know something like that then that does that's including the kid well 150 families mm -hmm. would that'd be about that'd be the right figure yeah 
to work with. And then you have some who can give more, some couldn't give anything at all. And, but it was God working. That's yeah. That's yeah. that's the way it always works. It's God working. It was um, it was miraculous, and yeah. it not only did that congregation do it once, that congregation did it multiple times. Yeah, uh, which is which is remarkable. How did you feel about the campaign while it was going on? How did I feel about it? Yeah. Um, I was sure hoping that everybody would just do the best they could. Mm -hmm. And I thought if we, if we can just get close to this goal, that'd be great. Um, Satan puts those doubts in our minds. Satan says, you can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. You shouldn't even try. Satan would say things like that to me. And Satan would, uh, uh, say things like, you're going to really be embarrassed. You know, you're saying you're telling the people that God can do this. God can't do this. You, you, you use the congregation definitely can't do this. There's not a, enough, enough faith in the pews to do this. So the, the way I felt about it, I was just constantly tempted to think very negatively mm. about it and just say, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. We're going to all be embarrassed, but, and uh, the, the final, when the day finally came, I'd gotten my thoughts together and my thoughts were these, and that is today we're going to, we're going to definitely do this. Mm -hmm. In fact, I can see us going over this because of the enthusiasm of the people that helped a lot because of the prayers mm -hmm. and because of your mom, your mom's a woman of great faith and it, it stirred my faith. Yeah. But there were a lot of, well, there were a lot of doubts. I mean, when I talk about the campaign though, there, uh -huh. there was that particular, special offering Sunday that I right. brought up as a, as an example, but sure. really the campaign to build a new campus for the congregation, uh -huh. it stretched over several years from the time that we decided we were going to purchase land, right? Sure. We're going to purchase sure. land because we're going to need to build to the time we purchased the land. And then we started raising money to actually build the facilities on the property. Uh -huh. And that's when the architectural drawings and the models started showing up. And, um, and so this campaign stretched from, I'm going to, I'm going to say it may have stretched from the mid nineties, you know, uh, my first memory of it was probably when I was maybe late high school, early college, so mid nineties and all the way to the time that they moved into the new building in 90 in Oh uh, five. So, I mean, we're talking about a 10 year campaign. Yeah to get into, uh, into a new campus. And so when I ask you, how did you feel about the campaign? I'm asking you how you feel about the entire thing, because you were involved with about eight out of those 10 years. It, it kind of, it, it's, it seemed to move a little slow. I'm used to moving mm -hmm. faster. Okay. And I thought, I thought we need to, we need to keep the momentum. Mm -hmm. That's one thing we had a difficult time with, at least I did. That okay. is keeping, keeping the momentum, uh, keeping people enthused about it. Yeah. And th the leadership knew that the leadership knew that if it, if they, if they waited too long, the, the momentum would not be there and people would just be tired of hearing about it and just forget it. So let's just forget this. This was a waste of our time, but they, they, they knew that. And I knew that, but the, the waiting was kind of painful. I really, just to be honest with you, I got tired of hearing about 
the new building and talking mm -hmm. to architects. I just got kind of tired of it. Mm -hmm. you, you know, why? this is what, go ahead. Why, I mean, you know, why did you, you get you've, you've heard us before that most preachers quit after a building campaign or after a building mm -hmm. is built because they're, they're just burnt out. They're worn out with it. Mm -hmm. So what about uh, it wore you out? Um, constantly coming up with something original, uh, constantly coming up with something new that would promote it. Uh, once you, once you open it, open this box, uh, once you, once you decide to do this, you've got to do it. You got to promote it and pray about it. And I'm not against prayer, but you got to promote it and push it and push it and keep everybody motivated until it's done. And that's hard to do. If you, mm -hmm. if it's a, if it's a year, it's a piece of cake. If it's two years, it's still a piece of cake. But when it's three, five, seven or eight years, it's very difficult to keep that momentum going. At least it is for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's hard to be original. And um, I think, I think people in general get tired of hearing it after a while too, but it all worked out. They, they get that building built and they're in it and they enjoy it thoroughly. How much did you feel personally responsible for, for keeping people motivated? Too much. And Too was much. that responsibility that was given to you or is that responsibility nope. you took on yourself? Nope. That was a responsibility I took upon myself. I yeah. can blame it on a lot of people. That was my, that was my, my undertaking. I kind of felt, well, I'm the preacher. I'm the guy in the pulpit. Yeah. So I need to promote this. And, um, you know, if the elders asked me to say something, I would, but I don't remember them mm -hmm. saying, you need to say more about this. I don't think they ever said that. So let me ask you a question about that, because sure. on, on the one hand, I've, I've been a professional fundraiser and I've run campaigns and right. they are a lot of hard work. Yeah. Um, it's extremely difficult. And when you finish one, you know, you're really tired and you really, really want to break. Um, and your donors want to break too. So, um, on the one hand, you said that you felt like you needed to keep coming up with things that were uh, original and you needed to find ways to keep people motivated. Um, and you took that responsibility on yourself. You said nobody ever asked you to do that. Right. You took it on yourself. So my that makes me curious. You did the camp did the building campaign it sounds to me like you started to take it very personally after a while is that accurate maybe 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 um yeah uh, i was i was beginning to it, since it was taking so long i was beginning to wonder if it ever would ha would happen okay there were, there were days like that i mean we bought the land and everything and you it would happen eventually just may, may take longer than what I had figured it would take. Well, I mean, did you, when you said you began to wonder if it was ever going to happen, Yeah. were you, were you thinking about that? Well, if so-and-so did their job better, this would be uh -huh. moving faster. Or if the congregation was more motivated, this would be moving faster. Or were you thinking I, Travis Irwin, could be doing a better job. If I were doing my job better, this thing would be moving faster. What what was it that you thought was holding things up? Um, well, that's a, once again, that's a long time ago. Um, 
you know, my tendency would be probably uh, maybe for the leadership to make some decisions, even though they were to them, they were moving as fast as they could go. They were very methodical and very careful uh, in their plans and the people they talked to and fundraising and all this. And I, I'm just of the nature that I like, I think things should move faster. Hmm. And, uh, but preacher, uh, preacher, elders can't afford to do that. Preachers really can't afford to do it either, but elders especially. And so uh, to me, it's just, it just seemed to be long drawn out. But it, before I left, I, I encouraged them to wait another year. Mm-hmm. How come? I, I thought they'd be better. I think that I thought they'd be better prepared for it. Um, I kind of just I wanted them to see what it would be like without a preacher or without me. That sounds arrogant to say that, but I didn't want them to. I, I didn't I didn't know what the future held for them. I did not know what the future held for the for the Still Avenue Church of Christ. Uh, when I left, I didn't know. I, I just didn't know, and I thought it may be better just to wait a year. When you have more answers, you, maybe you have more money, maybe you have more knowledge of what it's like to be without Travis. And that's that sounds arrogant to say that, but I'd been there twenty two and a half years. If I'd only yep. been there two years, like who cares, right? If I'd been there four or five years, like who cares? But I'd been there twenty two and a half years. I knew there there would be some kind of reaction to that i didn't know if that would be a good one or a bad one or a neutral one and i just i I, I hated to see them go ahead and build and they did wait another year and they kicked that thing in high gear and they got it done Mm -hmm. they got it done quickly and uh for a good price too i think it takes some courage to admit how you felt and yes it does sound arrogant and it probably was um many years ago so we all grow and we all mature my you know it sounds to me when you say i wanted them to know what it was like to be without a preacher for a year i wanted them to know what it was like to be without me it sounds like some tension uh like there was a growing tension between you and the leaders of the church that was coming about during this building campaign um and that's, you know, that's not going to come as a surprise to anybody because we all know that you did eventually burn out and you did leave. And um, so how much did the building campaign contribute to your growing um, feelings of, of, of tension with leadership, um, with the burnout that eventually came? what factor was this building campaign and all of that? A, a building campaign. Well, first of all, I was expending a tremendous amount of energy anyway. Yeah. And of course we've already established the fact that I was expending too much energy. Mm-hmm. I was trying to do too much. I was trying to do my job and everybody else's jobs. So that's wrong. So I'm expending all this energy and then comes along this building project mm-hmm. and this building campaign. And that requires even more energy, not just physical energy, but emotional and spiritual energy. And uh, it it just added on to what I was already carrying. And um, it it may have contributed in some way, big, large or small, 
just kind of pushing me, pushing me over the edge a little bit. And uh, but once again, Sam, I'm blaming, I'm, bl I'm blaming, I'm blaming, I'm blaming circumstances and blaming people. But when we go back and look at this whole thing again, everything, all the bad things that happened to me were my fault. I took on too much. Mm -hmm. But the, the building, building campaigns, building pro, uh, pro ventures and projects, they just drain people, period. I wasn't the only one being drained. The elders were yeah. being drained. They were meeting all the time and trying to work full-time jobs and so forth and so on. But I'm sure I'm sure that I'm sure that had something to do with me burning out. They contributed to it anyway. How did uh, I mean, you, this is an important point that you made. How did the building campaign affect your evangelism and your pastoral work and your teaching? These are the things you were doing already. And those things contributed to the growth of the congregation that led to the point where you needed to start talking about building a new place. Um, you said you were already doing those things and then you added the building campaign on top of them. Um, how did the building campaign affect what you would consider your normal work as the minister there? Well, um, during the day, not a lot, unless it was, unless the campaign affected my sermon preparation or my announcements uh, but you know that's it, it's it was on my mind a lot and on my heart a lot and in my prayers a lot so um i still visited i still still visited in the hospital still went to the hospitals at three o'clock in the morning if i needed to uh still kept up with all the older people we kept up with all the sick um try to keep up with people that were in the process of falling away try to Go visit people that had visited us, still holding Bible studies. I was still doing all that stuff. In fact, during that time, I was doing, I was doing way too much, way, way too much of that. Why? Less because I saw the need for it. I, I wanted, I, I started kind of a small campus ministry. Mm -hmm. We started a singles ministry. Uh, I was still doing my Bible studies. Uh, we were doing financial peace once and twice a week um wow i'd get home i didn't get home till late thursday night thursday night was my wide open night for bible studies and campus ministry and uh, whatever else monday night was for follow-up on visitors that had come on sunday and meeting with the elders to 10 30 11 o'clock at night um but all that stuff i, I just started adding on because I, I wanted to do that and that's what i did we did the singles class. We had had a singles group. We tried to do things with them. There just came a time when I was just going, 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 and I, and I enjoyed some of it, but I was tired all the time, and I was forgetful mm -hmm. all the time, and I was mm -hmm. beginning to lose control. In the in the, in the building thing, I just I'd show up, but my enthusiasm for it had just kind of waned. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't against it. I think I think they did the right thing at the right time. Um, I encouraged that building program. I, I supported it fully. But there came a time when I just was running out of gas. That was nobody's fault but my own. Were you um, how afraid were you to fail? 
In the building campaign or what? Period. As the minister to the Steel Avenue Church of Christ. Oh, I often always, always lived, I always lived in that fear. That was wrong. I was wrong to mm -hmm. feel that way. I would fail in my Bible studies. I would fail in my preaching. I, my preaching suffered as a result of everything else I was doing. I would fail with financial peace. I would fail with the singles ministry. I would fail with the uh, campus ministry. You know, from all indications, if numbers are correct, if numbers are any indication of the success or failure of something, you know, we were pretty we were pretty successful in all that mm -hmm. stuff. But uh, and I was had a class on Sunday morning for new converts that went on for we had that for years and years. Preaching at, twice at, on Sunday. Yeah. At what point? Uh, first of all, I got two questions here. Um, sure. One is a short one. At what point did you stop enjoying your work as the minister? at the steel avenue church of christ <laughs> I, did, I never stopped enjoying the people always loved the people they came i know that and yeah. they know that but you just talked yeah. you're not talking about people right now you're talking about things that you were doing what at what point did you stop enjoying the it started, things that you it started about five years before i before i walked away so about about the time that the building campaign was really starting to ramp up yeah. why were you so afraid to fail where did that come from? That's a great question. Uh, I'm a, I always felt like uh, no one would like me or accept me unless I was successful all the time or I was a certain kind of person. And then if I wasn't that kind of person, no one would like me. Mm -hmm. No one would value me. Mm -hmm. And I was really mixed up. My thinking was really messed up. Mm. And so there were some things that added fuel to that, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, but I, you know, I have learned since that time, and I even knew it then intellectually. I did not know it emotionally, but I know it now. That is, uh, I am valued not for what I do or what I am, just, just who I am. I'm mm -hmm. God's creature. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sinner, but God loves me anyway. Mm -hmm. And I'm worth more than everything in the world to him. Mm -hmm. And so, and I am accepted by him. I don't have to earn that. But it took years to figure that, figure all that out. That a lot of this comes from a lot of this uh, sick thinking or stinking thinking, as we call it, comes mm -hmm. from uh, a legalistic background. Mm -hmm. If you had, uh, I'm just curious. I mean, it sounds like the pressure because you were afraid to fail, um, because, you know, it was so important. You saw the need is what you said. You did all these things because you saw the need, but I feel like it has to be more than that because we can never, we can never meet all the needs that we find around us to meet. Right. We, we can only meet a few. And yet it seems like you had no, you had no check on yourself. You saw a need and you tried to fill it. And, um, you know, when you're looking for needs, you're always going to find them. Yep. And, and then the building campaign came along and put more pressure. You know, you were, I'm not going to say it put pressure on you. It, it would put pressure on you, but you assumed more pressure on yourself than you had to take. What if there never had been a building campaign? Would things have turned out different in Ashland for you? 
I would say probably uh, my first reaction to that is probably not. Yeah. I was headed down a, a dark road. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was doing a lot of stuff, a lot of really good stuff, but I was still being drained. And, mm-hmm. and I was, my, my pitcher was empty and it, my pitcher was dry. Mm-hmm. And I was neglecting my spiritual relationship with the Lord. I was, I was uh, uh, neglecting my spiritual life, my spiritual uh, health. And it, it, it caught up with me. The, the church building thing may have just sped it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted, we always wanted to move there and, and retire there. And we had this picture of how it would be to retire there. And it was a wonderful picture, but that all turned very dark and very sour, very quick. Mm-hmm. And um, so instead of enjoying the work, I didn't want, there were times, and you mentioned this before, we would travel on vacation and I didn't want to come back. Mm-hmm. Then I discovered in October of 2000, three when we were over in Loughborough, England for a full month that I didn't want to go back. I did not want to come back. I did not want to work anymore. I did not want to do it anymore. And so I had to, I had to resign. Mm-hmm. I saw a counselor and he said, you got to resign. You got to get out of preaching. Mm-hmm. But it, it kind of, you know, just things just weren't getting better, but everything was my fault. Not everything was your fault. And I'll just say right now, it's, it's important to take responsibility for ourselves and for the choices that we make, which I think is what you're trying to do. However, um, however, I personally refrain from using the word fault um, when speaking about myself or anyone else. And I try to say that I'm talk about what I'm responsible for and anybody else who was there at that time, dad, made mistakes of their own. Um, and it's really just a question of whether they recognize the mistakes they made or not. Um, so, you know, if you, if you say it's all my fault, you're really not any different now than you were then, because back then you were saying it's all my responsibility. Yeah. So to say it's all my fault now is to basically say it was all my responsibility then. And I blew it and that just can't be so. Yeah. Okay. All right. I remember you said to me, um, I was in college, I was out of college um, by the time that uh, you were thinking about leaving and we went on uh, a vacation or we were on a trip somewhere and uh, you and I were riding around in the car and you said something to me about, I don't think the congregation is ready for a new building yet i think they need to slow down i think they need to take a break and i asked you why and you didn't say because i think they need to find out what it's like to be without me you said i feel like and i'm i'm i I can't quote you because i can't remember your exact words all i can get is the meaning but you said i something effective i don't think the congregation is ready yet i don't I think they there there needs some to be some um, a different kind of growth, or there needs to be some growing in other areas. Yeah. Before they yeah. take this step, I don't know if you remember that conversation that we had. 
Yeah, I can but, imagine. Uh, yeah, I, what did you mean by that? Well, I, I thought uh, we as a congregation, and this could be said of any congregation pretty much, and that is there's two ways to grow, one's numerically and one's spiritually, and I thought we needed some spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. We need some spirit. We needed some spiritual maturity in the church, and uh, you know, I I tried to contribute to that in some way, but if, and I I just did. I don't feel like I did enough. I thought maybe we needed to focus on that a little bit more than just instead of focusing on numbers, focus more on people and their spiritual needs, their spiritual strengths and weaknesses, and getting them to discipline themselves and be more more like disciples of Christ than anything else. Why did you feel that way? My theology was going through uh, an evolution. And uh, when you study and you grow, you, you think a little bit different. Um, uh, in the churches of Christ, we have always emphasized membership, church membership, church membership, church membership. You're baptized into Christ and the Lord adds you to his church. And that's biblical and that's good and that's fine and that's wonderful. It's a great blessing to be a member of the family of God. However, I was a part of the, the downside of that is it's not much emphasis upon what it means to be a member of the church and uh, be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. We emphasize being membership versus being a disciple. Those are two different things. Mm-hmm. Being a member, being a member of the church means you show up every once in a while. You sit in a pew for a little bit, throw some money in a basket. You, you contribute nothing other than your physical presence and your money. Whereas discipleship, in discipleship, you give Jesus your everything, your time, money, energy, everything belongs to him. And he uses it to his, to his, uh, for his honor, for his glory. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's the evolution I was going through. And I've gone through it thoroughly. And I, and a lot of that is in my, in my, in my book on, uh, uh, finding God's purpose out for your life. But anyway, I was going through that and I knew that the, I, I didn't, I didn't want the church to get caught up in a building program and numbers. I wanted them to be caught up in loving Jesus and being like Jesus and following Jesus and growing in Jesus. I realized that I, that was lacking in my life and I wanted the members to do that too. Now, how that ever, how that came out, from the pulpit if it ever came out from the pulpit i can't tell you maybe you remember but that's that's what i was going through at the time well i wasn't around to remember it coming out from the pulpit because i'd already you know i was out of school and i was off living my my own life at that point i just remember the conversations that you and i had about that time in your life right um were you right oh i was absolutely i was correct absolutely let me ask you this hard question. You said what you revealed to me tonight. So um, you jogged my memory just now because you did talk about spiritual growth in that conversation that you and I had on that vacation, uh, okay. like 20, 20 years ago or whenever it was. Okay. I feel like you, you said, I feel like the, the, the church needs to grow spiritually okay. um, and that there's some spiritual growth that needs, needs to happen before right. we now you're looking back on that uh-huh. with 20 years of growth and self-reflection. And so you said something tonight that, that is really courageous. In my opinion, you said, I wanted them to know what it was like to be without me for uh-huh. a year. And uh-huh. you said, that sounds arrogant. 
And mm-hmm. I said, that is arrogant. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's no getting around that. Um, were you right about that? Now, don't think right or wrong, but was your, was the thought that motivated you to think was, was the thought that I want them to know what it's like to be without me. Was that, ac- was that accurate? What was your expectation of what they would discover when you left? Was it, um, were you on the mark? Did you well, have an I'll... accurate, um, uh, an accurate foresight into what would happen after you left yeah you get you getting what i'm saying yeah i know exactly what you're saying i was not wishing anything evil upon the people and you never would because you love them so much but i but i realize i realize how much i realize how much responsibility i took upon myself and once i was gone would somebody else pick up pick up those responsibilities and carry it on and And you knew the answer they didn't Big part. And you knew the and you knew the answer was what? Uh, some bad things could happen. Not horrible end of the world things. No, the not catastrophic things, mm-hmm. but it would affect would affect attendance. Yeah. And it, and it would affect uh, commitment and it would affect some things. But uh, I didn't know how much. I I now know. Uh I think uh, I won't get into that. But anyway, I was I was concerned about that. Mm. You know, and I can't I can't leave because I need to stay here and keep doing all these things. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what pushed me over the edge right there. Yeah, I mean, I think Dad. Just, I think it's important to say this: as human beings, I don't think anything we do is is pure. I think sin is always present every good thing that we do, there's always a shadow to it because we're human beings. So it's possible to love people so, so much. And all I've ever known of you is how much you deeply, deeply love the people in Ashland, uh, how much you loved the elders there, how much you loved everyone there. And I can say as somebody who spent a lot of time with you in private, that you drove us crazy with your constant concern and care for people in the congregation. I mean, we couldn't drive around Ashland without you pointing out where everybody lived. You knew everybody and you knew their stories. So your love for the people there was so strong. And yet at the same time, you know, I think sin comes from our own fear and anger and pain, right? And so you allowed resentment to grow within yourself. Yeah. So yeah. even though you loved the people there enough right. to die for them, and right. you probably right. took about 10 or 15 years off your life, you know, for them when it's all said and done, you also allowed yourself to grow resentful towards some of them at least. And so you can love someone and be resentful toward them at the same time. You can love someone and you can, you know, want to, you know, want to lash out at them at the same time. And it sounds like by the end of your time there, as the building campaign was moving from campaign to we're going to start to actually build this place, um, you were feeling intense love and intense 
frustration and anger and resentment at the same time. And uh, the shadow won out in that case. So that is a preface to, to really what I think is the hardest point of this entire conversation is that um, you said a lot of ministers quit after a building campaign because yeah. it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, that church topped out at about 350 members, uh, built the new facility. It's a beautiful campus. It's, fan it's really a fantastic place. Yes. Out on West Main Street, Nashville, Ohio. Yes. And then yeah. membership, uh, membership plummeted. And I think at one point it was below a hundred people a week. I, I think you told me at one point. So it would appear that the decision to build was based on some very big assumptions that did not pan out. What were those assumptions? The assumptions were that everything would just continue on the way it had been and that the church would continue to grow. Mm -hmm. course, did you make that assumption? Did you assume that? No, I never assumed no. that. No, because you had, if you don't, if you don't pastor sheep, mm -hmm. they scatter. Mm -hmm. That's a, it's a biblical fact. It's a fact of life. And, um, I was, I was afraid that the sheep would not be pastored mm -hmm. or shepherded. And, you know, for whatever reason, a lot of the sheep scattered, they went mm -hmm. somewhere and, uh, we could discuss that forever. I don't, and I don't know specifically where they went. I know where some of them went, but I don't know where all, all of them went, but you know, when I found out that the church attendance was like 90, 90, 94 people on Sunday morning, I thought, where's the other 260 members that I left with that church. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I made it my goal to talk to everybody that was considering placing membership to place membership. And they did. And I, I'm a, I'm a counter. Um, I, I'm a sinner, <laughs> but I, I knew that there were 350 men, women, and children that made up that congregation. Mm -hmm. And it was 150 families. And even on a bad day, 70% of that is what 250 mm -hmm. you, you should have 250 people in worship and it just it just it just started going down 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 they have a new building they have a new preacher come on just just get with it you know just kept going down 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 to where on Sundays they had 94 people in that huge auditorium 94 people things are better now I'm thankful for that mm -hmm. but that's what happened and of course I felt guilt for a long time that I caused that. Mm -hmm. And I may have contributed to that because the people were too dependent upon me. I don't know. God will let me know one day and he'll set the record straight. Well, let's end with that. All right. Let's, let's go back in time to that building campaign. All right. Uh, you've worked with churches over the years that are getting ready to build. You've done that since you uh, since you left your work at in Ashland, Ohio, you've worked with congregations that are considering building or or that are in the process of doing building campaigns. Yeah. Okay. What? Yeah. What could have been done different at the Steel Avenue Church of Christ during that that run up to building their new campus? What could you have done different? 
What could the leadership there have done different that would have perhaps led to a different outcome than what happened? Well, your your baby sister was in college. She had another, I'm thinking two years to go to college. And we, or at least I, your mother and I both were united on this, but I was pretty much the leader in this. I felt like I needed to, you know, I, I knew I needed probably to make a change, but I wanted to stay there another two years. So Beth, your baby sister could have health insurance and health care mm-hmm. and we could get her through college. And then I would just step down and that would have put me, well, 22 years, 22, 23 years there. That, that would have resolved the problem. If I had just been honest with myself and I said, just go ahead and quit and trust God to take care of the college education, take care of our health insurance, trust God. The same God who got Beth health insurance when she was little, when she was just a baby. It's the same God that could have provided for, provided health insurance for us when she was 21. But, you know, the fear, fear comes in walking on the water. You look down, you see the waves, you see the storm, and you lose faith. So anyway, that would have that would have resolved the whole problem for the church. For me, I wouldn't have gotten any better. Yeah, I disagree with you, Dad. All right, go ahead. I don't think that would have resolved the problem for the church. I mean, it you would have ended up leaving two years sooner. Right. Which might have exposed some problems for the for the leadership of the church sooner. But I go back even further to the question I asked earlier in the conversation about how did the entire, how did the decision to pursue a building campaign begin? And, you know, we've talked about you for weeks now. And one of the things I've noticed is that um, you needed to trust that people love you for you and not for what you could do for them. You never trusted the elders at the Steel Avenue Church of Christ in the sense that you never trusted that their love for you and their care for you was for you as a human being, as a person, rather than as an employee. Um, And I know that because mom, mom and I talked a little bit about this on her own. And she just said, your dad was always afraid of being fired. That was your dad's constant fear was being fired. And that's, that's the sign of a man who does not trust, ultimately did not trust that these men could love you and care for you just as Travis and not as their employee. And that people in the church would love you and care for you, even if you could do nothing for them, but just be there. And you brought this up yourself earlier. So one of the biggest revelations in your life, it seems, has been learning to trust that you are uh you are loved and you are chosen just for being you and not for what you can do for anyone else and if you had believed that at the time then you could have um your relationship with the church would have been much much different but for the leadership of that church um the assumption that things would just keep on going the way they were going. That's a pretty big assumption. And if, if I look at that situation, I say, what was missing here? 
why did the leaders never ask, why are we growing? What is it that's causing us to grow, right? And then where do we think this is going? And um, what do we need to do to continue to tend to the, to the health and the maturation of this flock, right? So it sounds like from the very get beginning, it wasn't form follows function. It was just, here's the form that we want. This is what we, and, and let's go get it. And the building campaign, the entire building campaign was premised on a, a very real need that everyone could see, but there were a lot of big assumptions that the leadership of the congregation made. And you knew about them. You just admitted it. You knew that there were some pretty big assumptions and you knew that they were assumptions. And your approach to, to that was to eventually remove yourself so that those assumptions were, were laid bare. And you turned out to be right. Yeah. That's, that's well, my take on it. Well, you're, my motivation, my motivation, I did not have an impure motivation. No, you didn't. But, but I, I resigned because I had to resign. Yes, you for did. For my health sake. So I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, there were moments when I think, well, what would happen if I left? What happened yeah. if I stepped down? And then even You were angry. That, Dad, you were angry. Yeah, that's I true. I was there. You were that angry. Was true. That was true. And that, and then that, that should have been a, a warning signal to me mm -hmm. that something is amiss. Yeah. And so, but you, you know, the rest of the story, uh, I, I tend to blame everybody else, but I, I am the, I am, I was my own worst enemy during that time. And I'm trying to, yeah. And, and then was it, it, it affected everybody else. It affected how I felt about people. Yeah, that was a matter of, of your own trust. And you've had to grow in your your relationship with God. Right. All of our trust for people, I think, derives from how much trust we have in in, in the God yeah. um, who yeah. sustains our lives. Yeah. Um, you know, Dad, as well as I do, that churches get in a lot of trouble with building campaigns. Yeah. Um, you were the one who taught me that congregations sometimes they grow in a high school gymnasium. Yeah. And uh, and then they have a building campaign and then they build a building and they have a mortgage and yep. suddenly that mortgage becomes the master. Yeah. And the spirit, the growth and the spirit and the relationships uh, that got the congregation to the point of needing a facility, uh -huh. those things uh, take a back seat now to paying the mortgage and taking care of the facility. Yeah. And it. Uh, it uh, snuffs the spirit. And yep. so there are countless yeah. stories of congregations that make a very large assumption about all we need is a building or a new building, and this will continue as it has gone before. Yeah. But those yeah. congregations never, their leaders never looked at how did this happen in the first place? How did we become who we are? How did we get here? And how will building a brick and mortar facility and going into debt affect what we have here. And dad, I've been working in the nonprofit sector my whole life and I've worked with churches my whole life. That's something that a lot of leaders just miss. It's a blind yeah. spot. Yeah. 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 So, and I think, I think the church in Ashland, 
um, the way things turned out after that building campaign, you certainly, I'm just bringing this stuff up because you certainly um, in many ways succeeded as the minister there, but you have admitted that you failed in many ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think maybe your biggest failure was trusting your people um, and trusting them and trusting in their love and trusting them enough to give your responsibilities away. But to be fair, the leadership there uh, proceeded on some very large assumptions that, um, that you knew about, and that if they had them to do over, they might not make those assumptions based on what they learned from experience. That's just my take on it. Right. But this podcast yeah. isn't about me. It's about you. It's, uh... Right. 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 Well, I appreciate uh, your opinion. Um, like I said, it's 20 years ago. Uh, I, I was just, a, I was just a mess. Yeah. I, I was mentally a mess and uh, wasn't thinking straight and uh, overcommitment. I took on too much responsibility, overcommitted and wasn't thinking clearly. And it caught up with me. And I'm, yeah. I'm sorry that it, adversely affected the church there or anybody it's because uh, you love them and uh, and also it, it, it affected uh, you and your sisters and your mom we we moved i was gone problem. you were gone we stayed Michelle another year we were gone. We moved. Yeah. yeah i just i think i think dad it's just it's really important one of the great things about being a christian is this belief in the grace of God and in resurrection. I mean, the resurrection is, it's the essence of our faith. Right. And the beauty of that is that we can make so many mistakes and we can sin and we can fail and we do. We die a million deaths, but there is no number of deaths that we can die that the power that raised Jesus from the dead doesn't raise us from the dead as well. And so we can talk about the mistakes that we made yeah. and we can talk about the sins that we committed and the things that we did wrong. We can talk about our weaknesses and we'd be vulnerable about those things because uh, our life and our love does not come from the fact that we, we do everything right for the right reasons. They come from the fact that God raises the dead, right? And so you can, you can make mistakes in your ministry and then you can talk about them 20 years later because God raises the dead, right? The, the church in Ashland, Ohio can talk about the mistakes that it made and the ways that it went wrong and can talk about them freely because God raises the dead. The bottom line is that God raises the dead. God raises the dead, not because the dead are deserving, but because God loves us. And so the gospel in all of this is, man, mistakes were made. There are regrets, but, you know, God raises the dead and we're all more mature and we're all wiser and we're growing up together as the body of Christ into the head. Right. Who is Christ? I appreciate your thoughts. And I appreciate you uh, talking about the building campaign. So you, you touched on, um, that you, you were going into a very dark time in your life. And so uh, the last uh, three uh, episodes about um, 
your time in Ashland, we're going to, we're really going to go there and we're going to talk about uh, what was going on inside you, with you. Um, we're going to get mom in on a couple of those because mom definitely has a perspective on what was going on in your life um, and your ministry at that time. And um, so I think the hardest times in our lives um, where we make the biggest messes are the times where we learn the most valuable lessons um, and where God can do his best work in us. And so I think uh, as we finish up our conversations about Ashland, we're really going to find out uh, just what God was trying to do in your life uh, and with the congregation there. So I hope you're up for it. Yep. I'll be up for it. Okay. Um, And uh, real quick, how are book sales? They're kind of flat right now. We're getting ready to do a book signing in Athens, Tennessee next Sunday. Right. And then uh, I'm, I'm, I'm headed towards working with uh, Waverly in January. Good. And uh, anytime I do a workshop or a retreat, the, the book is now required. So good. You can use the book quite a bit for that. Well, I just got my copy, as you know. So I'm going to read it and uh, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to do. Uh, use it to teach at uh, my own congregation. I want to recommend to uh, anyone who works with, uh, with churches to uh, check out dad's book. The uh, link will be in the show notes as usual and uh, pick it up for yourself. Get it as a Christmas gift for someone, you know, who is uh, ministering or leading or volunteering in, uh, in a congregation. And then, Think about ways that maybe you could um, uh, guide your congregation or a group of your members uh, to use the material um, uh, to understand uh, their unique gifts and how to use those gifts to build up the body of Christ. Did I get it right, Dad? Is that a good pitch? I encourage people. I encourage people go to Amazon.com. Look look at the book. Look at the table of contents in the first chapter, and it's either going to meet a need or not. And I think it will meet a need. All right. Okay, then. Thanks, Dad, for uh, sharing, uh, sharing some stuff about a difficult time in your life. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like sometimes when I talk with you, I feel like I'm being counseled. Uh, counseled. C-O-U-N-S-E-L. And that's okay. That, that, that's okay. Um, you know, um, I just don't, my, my zeal is not what it used to be. I'm, and I really hate that. A lot of it's good because of my health. But those those were good days, and I wish I could change some things, but I can't. But I can I can wish them well. Well, you can talk about them now, and yeah. people who listen to this, who are who find themselves in similar situations, will know uh, will will know how to do things different because they've they've gotten to to listen to the wisdom that you gained through your own hard experience. Right. And that's the that's the point of recording these stories is yeah. to to be helpful to leaders um, in congregations and people who are trying to minister and grow yeah. on their own. They can learn from you. So, so, so I appreciate appreciate the opportunity. So, do you what you got planned for this week? Yeah, lots going on. Uh, yeah, I just had a week off, so 
You're bad. Week, as, as my business coach, Doug Pell, once taught me, the worst weeks of the year are the weeks before and after a vacation. So I didn't touch work at all for the last week. And yeah. uh, I'm putting off even looking at my to-do list until I get up tomorrow morning, which is Monday. Uh, so, <laughs> um, yeah, it's going to be a, it's gonna be a good week and a, an abundance of things yeah. to do. My cup runneth over. Yeah. Mine does. Yeah. We really enjoyed having y'all. I'm glad y'all were home. Yeah. Yeah, enjoyed it so, so very much. We had a great week. We spent most of our time in a car and visiting, but yeah. I mean, I loved it. And I hope, I hope, uh, hope, uh, Tracy did. So did we. Tracy loved it too. And uh, Daniel r- reminded us several times that he wants to move down there so he can be close <laughs> to y'all. So he made a great impression on him. <coughs> That'd be great. Whatever you want to do. Right. All right. I well, love you, son. Have a great week. Love you too, dad. Thank you. Thank you now. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. In the next episode, my mom, Debbie Irwin, will be back with dad as we have a conversation about a scary period of time for our family. Now, like most ministers, dad was always fast to help someone in need. But in the late 1990s, when dad was beginning to break down under the pressure of expectations he placed on himself, helping others began to actually harm dad and his family. Since dad couldn't say no to anyone who he thought needed him, there just wasn't enough of him to go around anymore. It all came to a head though, when a man that dad tried to help eventually turned on dad and threatened our lives and the lives of several people in the church. Now, if you wanna ask dad a specific question in a future episode, you can email it to me at bt at btirwin.com. It's B as in Bradley, T as in Travis at btirwin.com. Also, don't forget to check out Dad's new book, We Are God's Masterpiece, at Amazon.com. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. And you'll also find a link to Dad's Caring Bridge webpage, where you can keep up with his cancer treatments. Thank you for being part of the Minister in the Making podcast. I hope the last hour was worth it for you. Now, if you're getting inspiration or wisdom from these podcasts, please share them with an elder, a fellow church member, a minister, or a pastor. And don't forget to leave a good review on whatever podcast service you use. Until next time, grace and peace.